Okay, kids, third grade and under, you head to Super Church. And good morning to everybody. Glad you're here this morning. Man, I love it when we have the chance to just see what God's doing in a young man's life. Thankful for Zach and for his salvation and for his baptism. Uh, blessed about that. You know, it's a, it's a crazy time, you know, to think about, about Jesus, him taking all our sins away. Him lifting us from the grave. I mean, just thinking about who he is sometimes, I'm pretty sure we don't think about him enough. I'm just pretty sure. I I don't think we even as followers of Christ think about Jesus nearly enough because it would change our view of life if we really thought about Jesus and who he is. I mean, you know, we live in a pretty chaotic world. We live in a, a world with, man, just a lot of struggles, hurt, evil, Confusion, you know, a lot of things pulling at us, a lot of things coming against us. And, and then to, to really begin to think about God and who he is, you really do have to spend time thinking about Jesus. You know, we've been teaching through, I've been teaching through the book of Matthew, not consistently for three years. There's been a few times we've taken off for Christmas or taken off for Easter, but, but basically for three years, we've been looking at the life of Jesus Christ. And, and let's just be honest, there's some incredible things about Jesus that if we don't pay attention to, we really, we really miss a dynamic for life. I mean, even the beginning of Matthew, when we are taught that, right, Jesus is Emmanuel, like God brought him into the world through Mary as a virgin. And because of that, we'll call him, right, Jesus, the savior of our sins, Emmanuel, uh, just that thought alone is the fact that God would love us enough to send his son into this world to die for us is pretty profound and should begin to lay a basis for us having security in this life. And yet I know many Christians don't have an inkling of security. And if they do have security, it's security in themselves, not in God. And the lost world, uh, it's just crazy to me. I, I, I'm just dumbfounded at the belief that a man can convince himself that he's enough for himself. I'm gonna build my life, I'm gonna build my kingdom, I'm gonna take care of myself, I'm gonna make sure my future is secure, I can do it, I'm a man, I'm a woman. It's just a joke, it's a joke. It's a lie that that we have perpetuated for ourselves that kill us in so many ways, it's ridiculous from the amount of depression and anxiety to suicide to, I mean, you, you name it. It's an ugly, ugly way to live in this world. And you think about Jesus and, I mean, we're getting to the place where he's, he's literally a couple of days away from the cross in Matthew 26. You can turn there if you want to. But he's really... I mean, he's really drawing things to a point, if you will, at this time. You know, we, we talked about the fact that he had told the disciples three different times that he had to go to Jerusalem. There was no other option. When he went to Jerusalem, he was going to be handed over. He was going to be mocked. He was going to be spit on. They were going to pull out his beard. They were going to whip him, and they were going to crucify him. And on the third day, he would rise again. He's told them that before they ever get to Jerusalem. When he gets to the ridge outside of Jerusalem on the east side, 
He tells them, go get a donkey. He gets on the donkey and he rides into town to fulfill the prophecy about the Savior coming into Jerusalem. And people worship him. At least they say they worship him. It's pretty profound. But from that day forward, things have, have gotten more difficult, if you will. Like he goes into the temple and he, he clears out all those that are cheating people by the way they're selling things in the, in the temple. And he tells them, you've made my father's house a house of robbery when it should be a house of prayer. And he just drives them out, makes them angry. Then they come to test him and he makes them look like fools, the religious leaders, because he's, he's the son of God and they're trying to test him as if he's not. Then he begins to confront these same religious leaders and tells them, woe to you, hypocrites, right? Because of all the hypocrisy they live in their lives. They claim to be godly and they're not. And he's just drawing things to a close and confronting people with their sin. And and then we spent the last five weeks talking about Christ's answer to the disciples when they ask him, when is your kingdom going to come? What's the sign going to be? I mean, what's it going to look like when you establish your kingdom? And he, he tells us, right? He tells us that in this world, while I'm gone, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Christians are going to be handed over. They're going to be killed. They're going to be hated by all nations. And he goes on to, to describe some pretty difficult things. There's going to be famines and, and earthquakes. And there's going to be some hard things taking place in this world. But he, he basically tells us, look, don't worry. I'm coming. Be ready. And he's telling us, be ready. Be saved. Know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the only way you're going to be ready for God when he comes. And we, we finished last week with him saying, man, when I come, the people are going to be gathered, all of them before me as judge. Some are going to be sheep and they're going to be on the right side. Some are going to be goats and they're going to be on the left side. The sheep are those who have been prepared for the kingdom of heaven. They're going to earn that kingdom of heaven. And the goats are going to be judged and they're going to be condemned to hell, to the lake of fire. I mean, it's just this plain teaching that Jesus has been giving. And yet, in so many ways, we never think about Jesus. It's just mind-boggling at some level to me. We, we run this race, if you will, through this world thinking somehow we're going to find security and life and purpose and joy and peace without these deep truths about Christ and without focusing on him. And, and I got to tell you, whether you focus on him or not, whether you think about him or not, whether you worship him or not, he's moving in this world. He's going to accomplish his purpose and uh, an ant of a man who's limited in scope, in wisdom, in power, in goodness or righteousness is not going to stop him. Do you know that? No one is going to stop him from being the king of kings and lord of lords and judge. And by the way, no one's going to stop him from being savior to those who trust him. So let's look this morning at Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 16. And I called this message this morning, preparing Jesus for death. And so verse 1 says, when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas 
And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful this morning for Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, the one who gives life freely to all who will believe, the one who is just and will bring justice, the one who one day will put all of the enemies of his under his feet and cast them into judgment forever, and the one who will save, Lord, forever those who have trusted him. I'm thankful for that. And I ask, Lord God, that you would continue to reveal yourself to us this morning and draw us to yourself. And I pray for the lost that today might be the day of their salvation. And I pray that you would strengthen your body and grow us as well. And I love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So here we have this kind of finished explanation of the end times. And and it's just this simple transition. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days of Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for the crucifixion. And I, and I read those verses and they're, they're pretty simple, pretty innocuous. They don't seem to have much thought in there. But, you know, when you read the Bible, you should ask, Lord, wh- why is that in there? Why did you say that? Why is that written? Because it's written for us. And, and you know, he's finished talking about some very important things, things that some of us in this room think we need to study and study and study and study in times. We want to know what it's going to look like. We want to know when he's going to come. We want to know what's going to happen when he comes. We want to know and know and know. And Jesus is like, listen, for you guys that know me, he's looking at his disciples. He goes, in two days of Passover's coming, and basically in two days, I'm going to be crucified. And it's, it's like he's saying to them, pay attention to me. Pay attention to the things that are important. Not that the end times aren't important and not that studying God's word isn't important, but, but quite honestly, man, we get ourselves focused on so many things that don't really matter. Don't, don't you? Is that just me? This is yes, this is no. Listen, I know better. It's astounding to me the things that we make important in our life. When when it comes to eternity, they're nothing. I mean, there's not a building in this city that's going to be standing in eternity. There's not a vehicle in this city that's going to be running in eternity. There's not a bank account, no matter how big it's gotten, that's going to remain in eternity. There's nothing that we're working so hard for 
that's going to remain in eternity other than those who know Jesus Christ and have trusted him. And so he's, he's saying to his disciples, pay attention. Now, he's done this with these guys so many times that I hope you and I actually listen because these guys didn't really understand even at two days before the cross that Jesus was actually going to go die. They didn't understand that because when they arrested Jesus, they all left him and they all scattered. They were all blown away by the fact that he could actually die. Even after his death, man, they were hiding inside locked doors because they couldn't believe that he died. They did not understand who Jesus was or why he had come because they were so distracted on other things. I mean, for them, without a doubt, they believed that he was going to be a political savior, Because James and John had said to him, hey, when you come into your kingdom, grant that one of us may sit on the right and one may sit on the left. And what they really meant was when you sit on your throne in Jerusalem, let us be counselors for you and be a part of your kingdom. And Jesus, he didn't come for that. He did not come to be a political savior. Man, of all the silly things that people talk about today, It's how glorious it would be if the right political party was in office as opposed to the other one. Isn't isn't that true? I know some of you guys are all about politics and you're like, well, man, I know Mike. He's just too dumb to care about politics. Hallelujah. If that means I'm dumb, sign me up. Listen. Listen. Jesus didn't come to make America great again. He didn't. I I didn't mean to get that big a laugh out of it. He came to save. He came to save. He came to save sinners like me. He came to save Republicans and Democrats. He came to save rich and poor. He came to save educated and uneducated. He came to save. And everybody then was still looking for some political savior to get them out of the Romans' control, including the disciples. And he looks at them and says, I'm going to die in two days. I've told you I have to die. I need to die. It's God's will for me to die. There's no salvation apart from my death. My death must happen Pay attention to me. And man, for you and I, it's the same thing today. The thing that we need in this world is Jesus Christ. We need him. He's the only one that delivers us from death. We, we studied in Sunday school this morning that he's the only one that reconciles us. Though we were alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, which we all try to smooth over, Right? You know, we're better than somebody else, so we must not be that wicked. Listen, we talked about it in Sunday school. If you rebel against God and you say no to God ever, that makes you wicked. It makes you and I wicked. And so how did God reconcile us though we were engaged in evil deeds and hostile in mind and alienated? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus had to die so that sinful people like us could have a relationship with God. And yet, today, man, we're so distracted that we can't even pay attention to Jesus 
who wants to save and bless and give peace and give hope and give life. And we're running everywhere and finding nothing. One of the best things in the world for me to do is spend time with, with worldly people. Worldly people. I love them. I love people. I'm thankful for the people I get to spend time with. But most of the time when I get done spending time with these people, it breaks my heart. Because they talk about all the stuff that they're doing and all the stuff that they want and all the stuff that they have. And yet the whole time I'm with them, they're unhappy. They're just unhappy. And then I try to point them to Jesus and it's the craziest thing. Some of them will not nod their head like, uh-huh. Some of them won't even speak because they don't even know. And I won't lie to you, man. There's some times where all I can do is just grieve and, and pray and ask God to do in their lives what he's graciously done for me. And then pray, Lord, let me love you more. And Jesus begins this passage by basically talking about the fact that God was preparing him for his death, right? It was God's will for him to die that he might save us from our sins. Well, let's go a little further. Verse 3 says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. They plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. And they were saying, Not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. So here you see this picture of God preparing Jesus for his death because he needs to save the world, wants to save the world. And then you flash over to this other picture, and this picture is of just the wickedness and the evil of those who claim to be godly. Here's the chief priests. I mean, these are men that of all the people in Israel, of all the people in Jerusalem that should have known Jesus, should have loved Jesus, should have listened to Jesus, should have celebrated his arrival, should have been the, the greatest supporter of Jesus Christ. It should have been these chief priests. They were set aside for the purpose of representing God before man and man before God. They were the ones that they would have told you were the holy ones. They would have told you they were the educated ones. They would have told you that they understood all these things about the promise of the Messiah and who he was and all the fulfillments of the Messiah. They should have known. And yet, because they did not love God, they would not recognize Jesus. And literally, rather than recognizing him, hated him. I mean, they hated him. They're plotting to seize him, and they're plotting to kill him. These are the ones that claim to know God. And, and what blows my mind, I mean, I, I think about these passages of scriptures, and, and I mean, I don't understand. Why wouldn't you love God? I don't understand I mean, I do at some level, but I, I don't. Man, he, he's good. He's gracious. He created us. He knows us. He knows our future. He's able to change our circumstances. He's able to protect us. He's able to provide for us. He's able to give us peace. I mean, he loves us. 
Israel had testimony after testimony after testimony of God's deliverance and God's protection and God's grace and God's forgiveness. Why wouldn't they love him? Why wouldn't they want him? I mean, it hurts me. Why, why would anybody not want this God that is nothing but good and gracious and powerful? And then I get confused because not only do they want him, but they hate him. And I see it. I see it in our community. I hear it in people's voices. I see it when people find out who I am or what I do. I always love that. I can have a great conversation with somebody until they ask me what I do. Well, here it comes. I'm a pastor. And then you're like, (laughs) you can just see it in their face. I got to get out of (laughs) here. Hate that guy. That guy's going to tell me God loves me. Hate that. Mm. But you know, man, there's a lot of people like these chief priests. There's a lot of people that in order to love God, they have to give up their position. They have to give up their desires. They have to give up worshiping themselves. A lot of people have made themselves the most important thing in this world. And God calls and God demands that we worship him and worship him alone. And when that demand comes, man, they despise God. Because they don't feel like he has the right. Isn't that true? Why would God have the right to make me worship him and follow him and serve him. Can I just simply say he's God and we're not. We're not even close. And so these guys, man, they begin to make this plot. They're going to seize Jesus by stealth. They don't want to cause a commotion because they're going to look stupid again because many of the people in Jerusalem believed that Jesus was at least a prophet, and many believed he was a savior, and so they didn't want to cause a problem. So they're doing everything they can to kill Jesus Christ in secret because they're nothing but wretches. But the crazy thing to me is that I look at this passage, and what I see is God moving through these wicked men to carry out his purpose. And it makes me chuckle. Proud people, no offense, but we're a joke. Our pride doesn't make us wise. It doesn't make us successful. It doesn't make us, you know, indomitable. These guys were so proud they thought they'd kill Jesus and God has already said it has to happen. And he's just moving Christ to his death through these wicked men and they were so blind they didn't even know it. And are you paying attention? Are you paying attention to God? Are you paying attention to his purpose? Are you being used by God in your rebellion? 
to the place where you're going to be embarrassed by what God has done through you? Are you paying attention to God to the place where you're saying, Lord, I want to walk right with you to carry out your purpose? Either way, God was preparing Christ for his death even through these wicked, evil, false, godly men. Well, the next part is pretty sweet because it changes quite a bit. This is now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came in to him with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. This little passage of scripture is powerful. Just in the simple fact that Jesus says, what this woman has done for me is so substantial that wherever the gospel is spoken, including Casper, Wyoming, this woman is going to be mentioned in memory of her. Now, I don't know about you, but he's not making light of this woman, right? He is honoring this woman about as high of an honor you're going to get. And, and it's so powerful. And, and I think about what, what in the world was this? What happened? I mean, why was this so important? And, and we just kind of break it down. He was in a guy's house named Simon the leper in Bethany. Bethany was about two miles east of Jerusalem, up the Mount of Olives, not very far. It would have been a town that he and his disciples had been in many, many, many times. It was where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus also lived, so that was familiar to them. This guy, Simon the leper, we don't know anything else about him other than this, but obviously he'd been healed because they were in his house, and if you're a leper, you don't live in a house. You're, ex- you're excluded from everybody else and so this guy had been healed some speculate that maybe jesus healed him but we don't really know he's just in a house but jesus is there and it's very very simple what it says about this woman but she comes in with this alabaster vial a very costly perfume and i might say extravagantly costly mark tells us it's worth 300 denarii it's a year's worth of wages that this woman has in this, this vial. And so she brings it in and she just pours it on him, on his head as, she, as he's reclining at the table. And it's not, a, it's not a difficult picture. I mean, when they ate in those days, they would literally lay on their side and they would put one arm down and then they would, there was a small table there and they would eat off this table, kind of a community table. And so to pour something over Jesus has said wasn't hard. It was able for her to do, but... But it would, have been, it would have been a shocking thing. And we see that by the disciples' response, but it would have been shocking in that we're told that it's pure. We're told that it's expensive. I mean, it's not the kind of, of scent that would be mild, if you will. I mean, the best thing that I can, can uh, use in comparison was when I went to Bulgaria the first time, Bulgaria has fields of rose bushes. I mean, fields, acres of rose bushes. And you could smell those roses from a long way, potentially even miles, right? 
So one of the ways for me to remember Bulgaria when I came home was I bought this little vial of rose oil, crushed rose petals, made oil. It's a little vial about that big and about that thin, very small inside a little container. But if you took the top off of that vial of rose oil, it would make our whole house smell like roses. It was intense, you know? And I, and I realize as I think about this passage of scripture, if you took a big alabaster vial worth, you know, a year's wages and you poured the whole thing out, the smell would have just been overwhelming. You could have smelled it in the whole house. You could have smelled it outside the house. You might've been able to smell it on the streets. This was no insignificant act of worship, right? To, to pour this kind of, this kind of uh, perfume over Jesus's head would have been an act of humility. I mean, deep humility. You would have had to known that Jesus is so much more valuable than you are. He's so much more worthy of respect than you are. Matter of fact, you would have had to know he was, he was worthy of worship. I mean, this wasn't some act of honor. This was an act of worship. And so this woman comes with this pure heart and she just pours out the most expensive thing that she had available to her. Quite honestly, it could have very much been her retirement. I mean, that's what they would do. They didn't have bank accounts necessarily. So if they had something of value, they would keep that until they couldn't work or until they were older. And then they would use that to sustain their life. But it didn't really matter to her. What mattered to her was Christ. And I, I love this picture. It is, it is shocking and humbling to me because, I mean, you think about this and, and you ask yourself, what does it take? What would it take for me to worship Christ this extravagantly? You know, I, I've had conversations over the years about worship with many, many people and, and everybody seems to have their thoughts about it. I mean, some people think that worship is singing and singing well. Some people think that worship is dancing. Some people think that worship is, you know, jumping up and down and screaming. And some people think that worship is quiet. And listen, none of that stuff proves that you worship Jesus Christ. None of that does. Anybody can do that. Worshiping Jesus Christ means that you are giving him the very, very best of who you are and what you have and what you do. That's what it means to worship. I urge you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is your reasonable service of worship. Right? He's talking about your whole life. He's talking about if you have money and it needs, you need to give it to worship Jesus Christ, give your money. He'll give you more. He gave it to you in the first place. He's talking about your time. So many of us try to figure out how or when or if we're actually gonna fit God into our schedule. Isn't that true? You know, Lord, I'm busy. So if I get a morning off, I'll go to church. You know, if I get a time during the day, I'll squeak out a, a prayer or two. You know, if I find the way to serve you. Listen, God is not 
that God. He's a holy God. He's the only God. And extravagant worship means that whatever time you want from me, Lord Jesus, I'll give it to you. Whatever you ask of my life, I'll go there with you. Whatever you want me to do, wherever you go, I mean, worship is when you lay yourself before the Lord without an ounce of selfishness, without an ounce of pride, without an agenda, and say, Lord, I'm yours. You are so worthy of me giving myself to you because you saved me and I trust you so much. I'm going to lay my life down for you. So, Lord, whatever you want, you can have it. But, man, you've got to really love him. And you've got to really know him to do that. Don't you? This woman, she came in and I'm sure, I'm sure she was so overwhelmed that he was there, that she could see him, that she could speak to him, even though it doesn't say she did. So overwhelmed that her Savior was there, that she just took this incredibly valuable perfume and poured it over his head as an act of worship. And man, I love the response from these disciples because it's so typical of us, isn't it? When somebody does something so radical, so challenging, is to pour out the very best they have on Jesus. These disciples, they're indignant. They're furious. They're angry. They're annoyed. They can't believe someone would want to worship Jesus to that extent. And so they say, why wasn't this perfume sold and given to the poor? And, you know, it it makes sense to some degree, right? There's always somebody in need around us. But Jesus answers them very simply, why are you bothering the woman? You always have the poor. You won't always have me. And I love what he's saying. What he's saying is, is it's not wrong to help the poor. He's not saying that. But what he's saying is when you have me, man, give to me, worship me, love me, have a relationship with me, value me, understand what you have when you have me. She gets it. You don't. She's come and she's valued me at the highest extent and she's going to receive the blessings of having this relationship with me. He is worth it. There's not a person on earth worth that kind of love. And I've told you this a thousand times. I love my wife. I love my daughter. I love you. I love, I love people. But there's not a one of you worth worshiping. If I worshipped you, you would destroy me. And if you worshipped me, I would destroy you. Because I can't live up to that, and you can't live up to that. We're not God, but Jesus Christ, to worship him and love him means to receive back from him a million times more than we could ever give to him. And this woman wasn't ashamed to worship. And I pray you and I would learn to worship extravagantly the Savior So he tells them, man, why do you bother her? She's done a good deed for me. You can always give to the poor, and you should, but you can't always worship me. And and then he says, 
For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. And you think, man, what in the world does that mean? I mean, you think about it practically. I mean, the Jewish practice of preparing a person for burial would be to wrap them in cloths and put in spices and other things that would preserve their body. And, and you, we read the scriptures, and when Jesus died, they did take him down. They did wrap him in a cloth. They put some of the spices in there. They didn't finish it because the women were going to go back out after the day, after the Passover, and finish it. But he couldn't be talking about that because she didn't pack him in spices. So it wasn't, wasn't about that. When you think about it, I mean, you think he's two days away from the most excruciating suffering and the most deplorable humility a man will ever know. I mean, crucifixion is still known as the worst type of capital punishment the world's ever known. It literally rips your body apart until you actually suffocate because you can't hold yourself up anymore and you die this miserable, wretched, slow death. It was also known to the Romans as the, the way to identify the worst of the worst of the criminals. You had to be absolutely wretched to be hung on a cross. But if that weren't enough... Jesus is two days away from becoming our sin. I can't even speak about it without thinking about the guilt and the shame of that. If Jesus just had to go from sinless holiness to my sin, it would be, it would be indescribably humiliating and disgusting. But he took your sin too. And it's just as disgusting as mine. He took the sin of the rapist, of the murderer, of the child molester. He took the sins of the world upon him. Every single one. So Jesus is two days away, not just from dying, but from becoming the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world from becoming our sin. And you know he was already feeling it, and you know he was already struggling. I mean, the night before he was arrested, he prayed, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your, be, your will be done. It was going to be a horrible day, and it was going to be dark, and it was going to be beyond description. But before his death, this woman came and she said to him, this is what you're worth. This is what you are. You are the Lord God Almighty. You are the sacrifice for my sins. You are my Savior. And there's nothing in this world more valuable to me than you. And so the beauty of the cross and the beauty of his love and the beauty of his sacrifice was amplified so that he was ready. He was ready to go. And years ago I read somewhere that it's really possible that this perfume running down his head and onto his clothes 
was still wafting as they arrested him and beat him and crucified him. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I mean, you and I, and I know, I, I do know, I know how hard it is to worship him with that kind of extravagance. I know how hard it is to actually see the great value and glory and goodness of Christ. It's hard for us because we get so distracted and so focused on ourselves and the cheap things of this world. But can you imagine how good it must have felt to this woman? I mean, they don't even tell us her name here. It wasn't her name that mattered. It was her act of worship that mattered. Can you imagine how good it must have been when she heard Jesus tell the disciples, what she's done to me is so significant that everywhere the gospel is preached, she will be mentioned. You and I don't really know what our worship means to God. You and I don't really know the difference that our worship is going to make. I don't believe this woman had any idea that what she was doing was going to be so significant to Jesus that he was going to point her out for the rest of eternity. But she did it because she loved him. And the cool thing about it is, is she was preparing him for his death and she didn't even know. God sovereignly moving and making things happen and working things out in this passage. And you and I, we need to be about it. We need to see where God is and who God is and how we walk in that way. Well, let me finish these last few verses. It says, Then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Man, I, uh, I'm always amazed. I, I am always dumbfounded. Here's a man that has literally lived with Jesus, heard Jesus teach, watched him heal, watched him raise the dead. I mean, he too has the chance to really know who Jesus is, but he was never a believer. He was never a believer. He had the chance, but he just, for whatever reason, would never trust Christ as his Savior. Matter of fact, back in John chapter 6, verses 70 through 71, it says, Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? It'd be a hard thing to hear Jesus say. And then it says, now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. All along, God knew that Judas was going to betray him. Matter of fact, back in Zechariah 11, 12 and 13, I won't read it, but it mentions the 30 pieces of silver in the potter's house. I mean, God, God wasn't surprised by this. But here's this shocking moment where Judas just says, you know what, Jesus? You're not the Savior I want. You're not the Savior I've chosen. You aren't going to make me rich. You aren't going to change my politics. You're not going to reign in Jerusalem. You're going to die, and now you're going to let this woman, you know, waste this money on you, and you're just not what I want. And so he goes and says to the chief priests, what will you give me to betray him? I mean, what does it take? What does it take for a person to finally say, 
I'm not choosing the Savior. Because when you don't choose him, you hate him and work against him. And they go, thanks, man. And they give him 30 pieces of silver, 30 days wages. 30 days wages. It doesn't make you independently wealthy. Barely lets you pay your bills. It was a cheap price for the Son of God. It would have been a cheap price for a man. It was even a cheap price for Judas. These guys didn't respect Judas. They didn't respect Jesus. Why would they? They don't respect God. And so he sells them out, and God moves through Judas, through the chief priests, to bring Jesus to the cross. And I, I love this truth. I love this truth. Evil people, nice-looking, hard-working, Husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, sons and daughters. Never spent a night in the jail, never been arrested. Go to church. Evil people. Evil people. Hate Jesus. Think they're going to throw off God and his reign. Think they're going to get away with rejecting this offer of salvation and unknown to them, God is working through them to bring about his plan of salvation through the chief priests, through Judas, even through this beautiful, sweet, gracious woman. God's working. And they didn't even know. Man, is God working in your life today? You might as well shake your head this way. He's working. You think you're going to cast him under your feet as insignificant and inconsequential? Uh-uh. No, he's working. You think you're going to be the star of the show? You think you're going to make your life well? You think you're going to keep yourself from sickness or heartache or disaster? You think when you die, you are going to stand before the king and say, let me into your kingdom. I'm so amazing. No. No. One God, one Savior, all the rest of us, we need saved. And he's working. He's coming back one day. He's going to bring both final salvation and final judgment. And he's told us he's going to separate us. We won't have to separate ourselves. Some will be saved. Some will be lost. He knows who you are. Have you trusted Christ? Have you humbled yourself? I mean, what do you learn from these passages of Scripture? I mean, the first thing we learn is that while the disciples didn't understand everything about what Jesus was doing, Neither do we. But that doesn't mean we can't trust him. Because while they didn't understand him, he still accomplished what he said he would accomplish. And it's true today. We've got to trust him. 
The second thing we learned that wicked men have always hated God and hated Jesus, and they've always tried to do away with him and get rid of his reign over their life. But they've never been able to do it. And so if we want to have life, we've got to submit to him and trust him. And the third thing I love this, when God uses our extravagant worship to beautify and bless the Lord God Almighty and to make a difference in his life, and he's worth it. If you've never trusted Christ, why not today? Why not say I'm a sinner? Why not say like Zach said? Zach said it so simply. I realized I needed God in my life, so I gave him my life. And now I want to follow him. How powerful is he, a young man, say those things? So much more wisdom than so many adults. Man, if you don't know him, why not trust Jesus today? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thankful for your word. I ask that you would just move in our hearts, Lord. You are moving. You have been moving. There's people here that know, Lord Jesus. They know you. They know you're the Savior, but they don't want to give up their lives. They don't want to give up control. They don't want to love you. They don't want to worship you because they're afraid and they're selfish. Please, Lord Jesus, show them it'll be okay. Show them that to have you means to have everything and to not have you means to have nothing. Show us, Lord, we need you. There's some of us here today that we know you. We're so full of anxiety. We don't see you moving. We keep our eyes fixed on all the things happening around us, and they're hard, and they're scary, and they're difficult. But, Lord, you've always been bigger. You've always been in control. You're sovereign. You're working through all these things, and we can trust you. Help us trust you, Lord. Lord, I'm grateful for you. I pray you would help me and help our church worship you extravagantly. Let us give our lives to you, Lord. And Lord, I love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.